Hello, and welcome to the February 2013 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess along with Sarah Moore. Let me again tell you about our new journal website. Please visit us at www.rcjournal.com. This month's issue is packed full. We will cover the first 10 original research papers in detail and then briefly describe the additional content in this month's issue. As is increasingly the case, we publish a variety of content this month, so there should be something of interest to everyone. Our first paper this month is False Positive Rate of Carbon Monoxide Saturation by Pulse Oximetry of Emergency Department Patients by Weaver and colleagues from April 1, 2008 to August 15, 2008, study personnel measured carbon monoxide saturation by pulse oximetry SPCO, and documented demographic factors at time of clinical blood draw in a convenient sample of 1,363 patients presenting to the emergency department at Intermountain Medical Center in Murray, Utah. The technician then assayed blood carboxyhemoglobin COHB. False positive or negative values were defined as SPCO at least three percentage points greater or less than COHB level, reported by the manufacturer to be plus or minus one standard deviation in performance. In these subjects, 45% were male, 84% were light-skinned, and 9% met the criteria for a false positive value, while 18% met the criteria for a false negative value. Risks for a false positive SPCO reading included being female and having a lower perfusion index. Methemoglobin, body temperature, and blood pressure also appear to influence the SPCO accuracy. There was variability among monitors, possibly related to technician technique, as rotation of monitors among the technicians was not enforced. The authors conclude that while the RAD57 pulse oximeter functioned within the manufacturer's specifications, clinicians using the RAD57 should expect some SPCO readings to be significantly higher or lower than COHB measurements and should not use SPCO to direct triage or patient management. Symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning are nonspecific. Diagnosis therefore requires suspicion of exposure confirmed by measuring ambient CO levels or carboxyhemoglobin. An FDA-cleared pulse oximeter is commercially available to measure CO saturation, but the device accuracy has implications for clinical decision-making. Weaver et al. found that, while the pulse oximeter functioned within the manufacturer's specifications, clinicians should expect some SPCO readings to be significantly higher or lower than blood carboxyhemoglobin measurements and should not use SPCO to direct triage for patient management. An elevated SPCO could broaden the diagnosis of carbon monoxide poisoning in patients with nonspecific symptoms. However, a negative SPCO level in patients suspected of having carbon monoxide poisoning should never rule out CO poisoning and should always be confirmed by carboxyhemoglobin. In their editorial, Wilcox and Richards suggest that clinicians 
must continue to have a high index of suspicion for carbon monoxide poisoning and be aware of the limitations of CO oximetry. All patients considered at risk should have a confirmatory blood carboxyhemoglobin measurement. Gailinda Filho et al. hypothesized that nebulization coupled to NIV should raise radioaerosol pulmonary deposition in asthmatics. In this controlled trial, 21 adults with moderate to severe acute asthma were randomized to a control group or experimental group of NIV plus nebulizer treatment. All subjects inhaled bronchodilators for nine minutes, and after particles were counted with a gamma camera to analyze regions of interest and pulmonary clearance at 0, 15, 30, 45, and 60 minutes. Breathing frequency and minute ventilation were reduced, and tidal volume was increased in the NIV plus nebulizer group compared to the control group. The NIV plus nebulizer group had improvement from baseline values compared to the control group in FEV1, FVC, peak expiratory flow, and inspiratory capacity. However, no differences were observed between groups regarding radioaerosol deposition index or pulmonary clearance. Negative correlations were found between FEV1, inspiratory capacity, and radioaerosol penetration index. The authors concluded that coupling nebulization and NIV during an asthma exacerbation did not improve radioaerosol pulmonary deposition, but did result in clinical improvement of pulmonary function in these subjects. Despite the clinical improvements attributed to non-invasive ventilation during acute asthma and the well-established effects of nebulized bronchodilators, there are few studies on the effects of these interventions administered together. These authors found that, although coupling inhaled beta agonist and non-invasive ventilation during asthma exacerbation did not improve radioaerosol pulmonary deposition, there was a clinical improvement of pulmonary function. As pointed out by Optholt in his editorial, accumulating evidence supports the use of non-invasive ventilation for acute asthma and the administration of inhaled beta agonist coupled with non-invasive ventilation. In the paper by Vercelli's and colleagues, they hypothesized that comorbidity burden and colonization with multiple drug-resistant organisms would be associated with worse clinical outcomes. They performed a retrospective cohort study of 157 mechanically ventilated subjects in an urban long-term acute care facility admitted between January 2007 and September 2009. Comorbidity burden was documented from pre-admission data using the Charlson Comorbidity Index. Colonization data were obtained from surveillance cultures. Outcomes studied included transfer back to acute care facilities, stay, and ventilator weaning status. Within 60 days, 58.6% of subjects were transferred back to an acute care facility. The most common reason for transfer was infection or sepsis. For subjects transferred back to acute care versus those who were not, the odds ratio was 1.1 for each one-point increase in Charlson comorbidity index. Colonization with a Cenobacter was associated with higher incidence of transfer.
The odds ratio for transfer to acute care was 1.3 for each additional organism colonizing a subject. The authors concluded that a higher comorbidity burden and colonization status were associated with increased risk of transfer to acute care. Long-term acute care hospitals provide specialized care for survivors of critical illness who require prolonged mechanical ventilation. These chronically ill patients often have multiple comorbidities and are colonized with antibiotic-resistant organisms. These authors found that a higher comorbidity burden and colonization status were associated with increased risk of transfer to acute care from long-term acute care hospitals and they suggest that further investigation is needed to clarify the relationship between comorbidity burden and colonization with change in clinical status. In their editorial, Vitacha and Nava suggest that, despite clinical and scientific evidence of effectiveness of chronic ventilator facilities, their place in the organizational network and their impact on the economics of healthcare delivery remains incomplete. Next is the paper by Fisher et al. Tracheostomy tube change before day 7 is associated with earlier use of speaking valve and earlier oral intake. The authors hypothesized that changing tracheostomy tubes before day 7 was associated with earlier use of a speaking valve as well as early oral intake compared to changing tracheostomy tubes after 7 days. They prospectively enrolled 130 admitted subjects after tracheostomy tube placement to a respiratory care unit between July 2008 and May 2010. The primary endpoint was the time from tracheostomy tube placement to tolerating a speaking valve. The secondary endpoint was the time from tracheostomy tube placement to tolerating oral intake. Complications of tracheostomy change were recorded. 38 subjects had the first tracheostomy tube change before 7 days, and 92 subjects had the first tracheostomy tube change after 7 days. The early group tolerated a speaking valve significantly sooner than the late group. The early group also tolerated oral intake significantly sooner. After change of the tracheostomy tube, the time to tolerating oral feeding was 5.5 days in both groups. There was no significant difference in time to decannulation between both groups. The early group had a shorter respiratory care unit stay and a shorter hospital stay than the late group. There was no difference in survival and there were no complications associated with tracheostomy tube change. The authors concluded that tracheostomy tube change before day 7 is associated with earlier ability to tolerate speaking valve and oral intake. Presence of a tracheostomy tube often decreases the patient's ability to communicate and to tolerate oral intake. The initial tracheostomy tube change is often recommended to occur between day 7 and day 14 post-insertion. These authors found that tracheostomy tube change before day 7 was associated with earlier ability to tolerate a speaking valve and oral intake. Early tracheostomy tube change was not associated with an increased rate of complications. Next, we have the paper, Evaluation of Four New Generation Portable Ventilators by Blakeman and Branson. They evaluated four portable ventilators, the Impact EMV, CareFusion LTV-1200, Newport HT-70, 
and the Hamilton T1. In terms of triggering, delivered tidal volume accuracy, battery duration, delivered FiO2 accuracy, and gas consumption. Triggering was tested using a dual-chamber lung model, with one side representing a spontaneously breathing patient using a weak, normal, and aggressive effort, driving the other side, representing the ventilator's response to a patient effort. Delivered tidal volume and FiO2 accuracy were evaluated across a range of operation. To determine gas consumption, the ventilators were attached to an E-type oxygen cylinder and operated at an FiO2 of 1 until the tank was depleted. Battery duration was tested by operating each ventilator at an FiO2 of 0.21 until the device ceased to operate. Gas consumption ranged from 9.2 to 16 liters per minute. Battery duration ranged from 101 to 640 minutes. Triggering performance varied among devices but was consistent breath-to-breath -breath within the same device, using the fastest and slowest rise time settings. FiO2 accuracy varied at a low range on the 50 milliliter tidal volume setting with one device and at a high range on both the 50 milliliter and 500 milliliter tidal volume settings with another. The authors concluded that all the ventilators tested performed well on tidal volume delivery across a range of settings, using both the internal drive mechanism and compressed oxygen. Two of the ventilators were unable to deliver accurate FiO2 across the range of tidal volume. None of the devices was clearly superior to the others in every aspect of their evaluation. Portable ventilators are increasingly utilized in the intra- and inter-hospital transport of patients. Blakeman and Branson found that none of the devices that they evaluated was clearly superior to the others. One thing that is clear from this study is that manufacturers continue to improve the performance of portable ventilators. Middle ear effusion in mechanically ventilated patients, effects of the nasogastric tube, is by Pina and colleagues. The aim of this study was to analyze the effect of the nasogastric tube on middle ear effusions. This was a prospective observational study carrying out an otoscopic examination and tympanometry in 100 mechanically ventilated patients. Emittance testing was carried out within 24 hours of ICU admission and every 72 hours until ICU discharge. In a case of persisting pathologic curve at the moment of discharge from ICU, there was a follow-up examination every three days until middle ear function was restored. In addition to descriptive variables, the authors recorded placement and diameter of the nasogastric tube. A total of 535 tympanometry studies were carried out, of which 352 were normal and 183 observations presented middle ear effusions. The authors observed that 12 and 16 French nasogastric tubes were not significantly associated with abnormal middle ear function, whereas the 18 French nasogastric tube was significantly associated with middle ear effusions. 
Other variables independently associated with pathological tympanogram curves were Ramsey sedation scale score greater than or equal to 4 and orotracheal intubation. No intracranial infection or long-term disabilities were identified. The authors concluded that middle ear effusions and tympanometric alterations are frequent in intubated patients. To prevent these complications, these patients should receive nasogastric tubes with a diameter lower than 18 French when feasible. Middle ear effusion is rare among adults, but has a higher incidence among patients in the ICU. In this study, middle ear effusions and tympanometric alterations were frequent, occurring in 32% of intubated patients. Clinicians caring for critically ill patients should be aware of this complication and use the smallest size nasogastric tube as is feasible. Our next three papers this month are related to cystic fibrosis. The first one is Adherence to Airway Clearance Therapies by Adult Cystic Fibrosis Patients by Flores et al. The objective of this study was to determine rates of self-reported adherence to airway clearance therapies by patients treated in an adult cystic fibrosis program to identify patient characteristics associated with poor adherence, to typify adherence according to airway clearance technique, and to indicate reasons for poor adherence. This cross-sectional study included cystic fibrosis subjects aged 16 years and older. Enrollees were evaluated via general structured questionnaire, adherence questionnaire, clinical assessment, spirometry, and oxygen saturation values. Each was stratified by self-reporting protocol as high, moderate, or poor adherence to airway clearance therapy. Concordance between therapist-recommended airway clearance technique and self-reported subject adherence was subjected to agreement analysis. Of the 63 subjects studied, 60% qualified as high adherence, 19% as moderate adherence, and 21% as poor adherence. Logistic regression identified education level less than high school as an independent factor associated with poor adherence. Positive expiratory pressure and flutter device usage both corresponded with a high level of agreement, while active cycle breathing technique and autogenic drainage each showed moderate agreement. Agreement was low for percussion and postural drainage. Reasons given most frequently for poor adherence to airway clearance were not enough time to do the treatment, can't be bothered, and do not enjoy the airway clearance technique. But many provided no reason. The authors concluded that a lower level of education was the most important factor in poor adherence to airway clearance therapies. Self-reported adherence and treatment recommendations were in best agreement with positive expiratory pressure and flutter device techniques. Our next paper related to cystic fibrosis is by Cox, Assessing Exercise Capacity Using Telehealth, a Feasibility Study in Adults with Cystic Fibrosis. These authors aim to establish the feasibility of monitoring and assessment of exercise capacity using telehealth technology. Adults with cystic fibrosis completed two three-minute step tests monitored in person or remotely via video conferencing in randomized order. Measurements were physiological response to exercise, system usability, ease of clinician interaction, metronome acoustics, and participant comfort. Ten subjects completed both tests. 
Participants reported good system usability with a mean system usability scale score of 86 out of 100. Metronome acoustics were rated as significantly poor remotely. There were no differences in measurements of oxyhemoglobin saturation or heart rate between assessment settings. The authors concluded that exercise capacity assessment using the three-minute step test is feasible and accurate via remote teleconferencing in adults with CF. The third paper related to cystic fibrosis is, static hyperinflation is associated with decreased peak exercise performance in children with cystic fibrosis by Sovtik. They evaluated the exercise capacity of children with cystic fibrosis to determine whether ventilatory limitation associated with static hyperinflation is related to decreased exercise capacity, thus predisposing these children to arterial hypoxemia during progressive exercise. 37 children ages 8 to 17 years underwent spirometry, body plethysmography, and cardiopulmonary exercise testing after arterial catheter placement. According to the ratio of residual volume to total lung capacity, the subjects were categorized as either with or without static hyperinflation. Children with static hyperinflation had lower values of maximum load per kilogram, which was aggravated by ventilatory limitation. Subjects with ventilatory limitation had a significantly lower oxygen saturation and hypoxemia than did subjects without ventilatory limitation. The authors concluded that in children with cystic fibrosis, static hyperinflation and ventilatory limitation are associated with decrease in exercise performance, oxygen saturation, and PaO2 during maximum cardiopulmonary exercise testing. Adherence to airway clearance therapies is an important concern in adult patients with cystic fibrosis. Flores and colleagues found a high rate of adherence to airway clearance therapy and a lower level of education as the most important factor in poor adherence. Cox et al. assessed the feasibility of monitoring and assessment of exercise capacity using telehealth technology in patients with cystic fibrosis. They found that exercise capacity assessment using the three-minute step test was feasible and accurate via remote teleconferencing. Softik and colleagues evaluated the exercise capacity of children with cystic fibrosis to determine whether ventilatory limitation associated with static hyperinflation was related with decreased exercise capacity. Static hyperinflation and ventilatory limitation were associated with a decrease in exercise performance and arterial oxygenation during maximum cardiopulmonary exercise testing. In our next paper by Santos et al., the authors compared the mechanical performance of the Flutter VRP1, Shaker, and Acapella devices, an experimental platform and a ventilator, using a flow generator at 5, 10, 15, 20, 26, and 32 liters per minute, were employed at angles of negative 30 degrees, 0 degrees, and plus 30 degrees to evaluate flutter and shaker, whereas acapella was adjusted at intermediate, higher, and lower levels of resistance, including positive expiratory pressures along the air outflow rates and oscillation frequencies. 
When the relationships between pressure amplitudes of all air flows were analyzed for the three devices at low and intermediate pressure levels, no statistically significant differences were observed in mean pressure amplitudes between flutter and shaker devices. However, both devices had different values from the acapella, with their pressure amplitude values being higher than that of acapella. There were no significant differences in peak expiratory flow for the three angles or marks regarding all air flows. The expected relationships between variables were observed with increases in peak expiratory flow compared to those of air flows and resistance. Nevertheless, there was a significant difference in frequency of oscillation between these devices and the acapella, whose value was higher than those of flutter and shaker. At intermediate pressure levels, the patterns were the same. In comparison to low pressure, although the acapella device showed frequencies of oscillation values lower than those of flutter and shaker. At high pressures, there was no significant differences between the three devices for frequency of oscillations. The authors conclude that the flutter and shaker devices have a similar performance to that of the acapella in many respects except for peak expiratory pressure. Flutter, shaker, and acapella are devices that combine positive expiratory pressure and oscillations. In this in vitro study, Santos et al. compared the mechanical performance of these devices. When making clinical decisions about which device to use, it is of interest to note that the flutter and shaker devices had a similar performance to that of the acapella in many aspects, except for peak expiratory pressure. In addition to these 10 papers, we published seven more original research papers this month. I will briefly describe each of them. Mr. Letty and colleagues compared the performances of high flow and low flow air entrainment masks for CPAP systems to the Bosniak valve. The high flow air entrainment mass showed the best performance. During high flow demand, the Bosniak valve delivered lower than expected FiO2 and showed higher dynamic hyperpressurization than the air entrainment masks. The aim of the study by Sinsen and colleagues was to determine whether amino terminal brain natriuretic peptide levels in pleural fluid has diagnostic value for determining heart failure related pleural effusions from non heart failure effusions. Their findings suggest that pleural fluid NT-BROPNP measurement in the routine diagnostic panel may be useful in differentiation of heart failure-related pleural effusions and exudative pleural fluids. Chen et al. assessed how thoraco-abdominal synchrony in patients with COPD correlates with exercise performance during the six-minute walk test. They found that thoraco-abdominal asynchrony worsens early during the six-minute walk test in subjects with moderate and severe COPD, and ribcage excursion at three minutes predicts poor walking capability. The objective of the study by Panaroni et al. was to test the level of patients' knowledge of their disease and therapy at baseline and after a COPD educational program, the feasibility of structured educational sessions, and the influence of clinical status, demographics, 
previous knowledge level, previous lessons attendance, and program adherence to the variation of knowledge after the program. The formal COPD education program was feasible and effective in improving subject knowledge and self-management. The relationship between depression in patients with COPD and the percent of predicted FEV1, Bode Index, and health-related quality of life was evaluated by Iguchi and colleagues. They found a high prevalence of depression among patients with stable COPD treated in long-term inpatient rehabilitation facilities. Depression among these patients was associated with greater impairment in respiratory function and with poor modified MRC dyspnea score and SGRQ scores. The prevalence of depression increased with Bode stage. Identification of diagnostic criteria and risk factor analysis for severe tracheomalacia in the ICU is explored by Kandaswamy et al. Severe tracheomalacia was associated with a prolonged ICU stay, a distal tracheal anterior-posterior diameter less than 7 millimeters on a non-intubated CT chest film was suggestive of severe tracheomalacia that required a confirmatory bronchoscopy. Gastroesophageal reflux disease and obesity were potential risk factors. This month we publish a review paper on selecting modes of ventilation and an AARC clinical practice guideline on surfactant replacement therapy. Our case reports deal with successful apoprostenol withdrawal in pulmonary arterial hypertension and use of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation in a hematopoietic stem cell transplant patient with idiopathic pneumonia syndrome. Our teaching case describes tropopnea due to amiodarone-induced diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.